From our offices in Media City, Dubai, I'm John Lillywhite and this is the UAE Tech Podcast Expo Edition, a celebration of how technology is reshaping culture, economics and governance for the 21st century, brought to you by Albawaba Business. If you're interested in sponsoring the UAE Tech Podcast, tune in at the end of this episode for more information. I think one of the things that um, that Dubai has in its favor is um, the ability to move much more quickly, um, uh, you know, than, than than a country like the U.S. and and as a result, you know, those of us who who, who are coming from an environment where there there are many more layers of regulation and bureaucracy and so forth um, can utilize the experience of places like Dubai to understand how these technologies actually play out on the ground, uh, even as we're trying to work out our own, our own solutions. What if the future of mobility was walking down a clean, clear street and not just jumping into an autonomous vehicle or having your package delivered by a drone? What if the parking infrastructure across our cities could transform into gardens or architecturally created buildings? In the 1950s, America built roads that often favoured wealthy individuals and wealthy suburbs. So how can we ensure that new mobility solutions don't lock out communities in rural or economically deprived areas? In this episode, we caught up with Secretary Anthony Fox on the sidelines of the Hypermotion Conference here in Dubai earlier in September. Anthony Fox served as the 17th United States Secretary of Transportation between 2013 to 2017. As mayor of Charlotte, North Carolina, Secretary Fox oversaw two of the largest investment packages in city history. This included extending the Lynx Light Rail System, Charlotte Douglas International Airport, and starting the Charlotte Streetcar Project. Talking to Secretary Fox, it becomes clear that the future of the 15-minute city is not simply technology-driven. It's values-driven, economics-driven, and regulation-driven, requiring real-time and deep collaboration between the private and public sectors. From connected vehicles to semi-autonomous supply logistics on land, sea and air, the future of mobility is more efficient, but hopefully more human too. Hello, Anthony. Thanks so much for joining us today. Great to be with you, John. And I thought we'd start by just talking a little bit about Dubai, because I know you're coming out here for this Hypermotion conference. And obviously that's within the context of Expo 2020 and, and some massive changes that are taking place in the city. And so I thought just to you know um, present some of the issues today and also give a quick introduction to Dubai. Um, according to the Hypermotion Dubai website, 25% of transportation will be delivered through autonomous modes by 2030. Um, in Dubai itself, Uber have acquired Kareem, the ride-hailing app, for $3.1 billion in March 2019. Dubai has 89 million passengers annually arriving at Dubai International Airport. It's a world logistics hub. Um, DP World uh, has invested in Virgin Hyperloop. And there's also a 50-kilometer-length Skypod cable car network that's going to be used to transit uh, the, the city Dubai 
at some point in the future, in addition to a 1,200 Etihad rail network as a, creating trade corridors between Abu Dhabi and Dubai. So there are things happening here. And as you know, it's a city that's kind of trying to leapfrog into the future. Why do you like Dubai? And why are you excited to be coming out for this conference? And, and what kind of things have you looked at here in the past? Well, look, I, I've I've been to Dubai many times, and and what's what's so fascinating about Dubai is is the um, the willingness to stay on the leading edge of innovation and uh, the desire to to take the, uh, the 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 new innovative technologies that are finding their way into transportation, and you talked about several of them, um, and to to integrate those into a, a network. I, I you know, frankly, I think Dubai is. Is a, is a bit of the world's petri dish for transportation in, in that sense. And um, many of the innovations that are being attempted in Dubai uh, will, will, will scale and we'll see them in other parts of the world. So in, in many ways, Dubai has, has really taken on the role of, um, of leading the, inno the innovations of deployment of, of these technologies. And, and that's what's so exciting about coming. Every time I come out, uh, see something new and and different than I than I did the time before, and that's just a testament to uh, to what's going on over there. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I you know, I, I arrived just before COVID nineteen, and um, so it was an interesting time to arrive, and and obviously, you know, transport in the city was was slowing down as a, and was a bit different during that time. But the city is really opening up here, and um, a couple of days ago, I, you know, I woke up. And, and looked out of the window and there's a, a, there's a mini airstrip that's quite small over in the car, far corner of, of, of my view. And an airship was landing pretty much in the middle of the city. And above me, there were people doing skydiving because I live near, near a place called Sky, Sky Dive Dubai. So I looked out of my window, there were these people skydiving, you know, next to these skyscrapers and there was an air balloon landing. And just to top it all off, sounds absurd, but the world's largest Ferris wheel had had also opened just in my plane of view. <laughs> so this, this air balloon starts landing and I'm just looking at it thinking, this city is crazy. You know, I walk back inside, have my breakfast. I walk back outside and the air balloon has disappeared. They've already deflated it and it's already been moved. Um, so, you know, things can happen here and, and it does seem like the city now is surging forward very fast. And I guess this is a good opportunity for us to find out what's been happening in the States, what is the best practice, what are some of the issues you've been talking at, and what are the possible applications or synergies in this part of the world? Because as you discussed, you know, there are elements of, of Dubai and the ecosystem here that can act as a, as a Petri dish or a global Petri dish for other jurisdictions. Um, yes. So, you know, I, I know as undersecretary, um, you were heavily involved in automation, that you blueprinted a comprehensive national policy on autonomous vehicles and were involved in, in many other ways. Obviously, everyone's interested in automation. So I thought, you know, we kick off with that today. What is happening in autonomous vehicles in the States? What, what's the discussion? You know, could you give us a general introduction to what's happening right now in the States and where you think things are going? Well, it, it's an exciting time for transportation in the United States for many, many reasons. Uh, by the time this podcast airs, for example, my expectation is that the United States will have passed one of the most substantial uh, 
packages of legislation to advance things like electric vehicles and uh, the deployment of, of new charging stations and um, and, and frankly, uh, a much more open-ended approach to transportation innovation overall. Um, so I think it, it's very exciting from that standpoint. I, I would say that the, the, the report card on the U.S. right now, it, I'd look at it a couple of different ways. Number one, um, the rate of, of accelerated transportation development is happening in the private sector. Um, it is you know, it used to be in transportation, you might see an innovation every 25 years or so. Uh, I think we're down to seeing things happening, you know, every couple of years. And autonomy has been one of those things that is just, um, just, just exploded from in, in terms of the, the research that's being done in terms of um, the experimentation that's being done in various states around the U.S. I would say that one of the constraints on the, de the deployment and the scale of autonomous vehicles in the U.S. is the regulatory environment. Um, we, we have the problem both with air travel as well as ground travel, yeah. just unique challenges around congestion. And that inheres thinking carefully about the safety of this technology before it's it's put in place, and I you know we we started putting the building blocks in place of a regulatory regime in the U.S. that would help accelerate um, the safe deployment of these technologies. Um, but frankly, there's been precious little regulatory action around that, either through Congress um, at the state level or or through executive action. And I do think this administration will be paying attention to those issues and working to um, to put the building blocks in place. It's interesting because mo most of the times in the US, when people talk about regulation, they usually don't want it. But in this case, we have, um, you know, for example, uh, when you when you go get your driver's license in the US, there's no federal driver's license that you get, you get a, a state driver's license. And that's because we as human beings have been operating the cars for for forever. Uh, but now that we have technology and software that can drive an automobile, uh, it makes less sense to have state level standards around that software. It makes more sense to have one single federal standard, which we, we do not have at present. So I think, I think frankly, the technology is going to be ready to be deployed and scaled um, potentially faster than the regulations are going to follow it. And so I, I do think that's something to watch out for in the U.S. And you know, to, to use Dubai as an example, I think one of the things that um, that Dubai has in its favor is um, the ability to move much more quickly, um, uh, you know, than, than, than a country like the U.S. And, and as a result, you know, those of us who, who, who are coming from an environment where there, there are many more layers of regulation and bureaucracy and so forth um, can utilize the experience of places like Dubai to understand how these technologies actually play out on the ground, uh, even as we're trying to work out our own our own solutions. Yeah, I think that's that's true across you know a whole set of industries. I think one of the things UAE tries to do is stay agile, so that you know you have jurisdictions in the UK, big cities like London, you know massive cities and and entire states in the US that have very advanced tech infrastructure, but the regulatory regime and, and 
and even at times the, the economics and the difficulty of, of, of pushing stuff out, the approvals necessary, uh, means that it can be quite hard to, um, you know, just do, do testing, do R&D. And we had a, a large tech event uh, called Jitex here last week. And it was interesting, there were a number of companies um, that, that came here in order to test things that would be really quite difficult to test in other cities. So, sorry. So we had a, um, you know, we had met a, a scanning, a $6 million kind of scanning avatar system uh, that wants to be put in cities all over the world. And that came here first, partly because of regulation. But you made a point on the public sector as well. And I've heard you talk about that. And I thought it was really interesting. You said, you know, the history of transport was often public sector based. And yeah. unlike, you know, private sector often plays a massive role in the US and other cities uh, around the world, but with transport it is public sector based. And so you have all sorts of questions about equality of access. Um, yes. Is it just, you know, individuals in wealthy areas who can take advantage of these new autonomous vehicles, ride sharing apps? Um, what happens in, you know, communities, both in the United States and in other cities um, where, you know, access becomes an issue. Um, and we already have cities like in London, we have a congestion zone. We have a, we've had a, a decades long debate about where you are in the Metro link, really kind of defining your destiny in that city. So how's the United States thinking about some of those issues with the role of the public sector, trying to forge a voice in a very dominant private sector? It's, it's very interesting. Um and a very profound point you're making. Um, yeah, we're, we're, we're struggling with, with this. And, and, you know, going back 50, 60 years to the, to the belt development of the, the interstate highway system in the U.S., which is a very complex end-to-end -end system that we, we frankly didn't have before um, the 1950s. Um, the 1950s were also a point in time where there was a, a lot of... Um, a lot of civil rights activity and a lot of um, a lot of social unrest, given uh, where the country was at that time on issues around race, for example. And um, while the country was making some progress in in um, voting rights and employment and housing and other areas, um, the the deployment of the highway system was uh, was frankly uh, a mallet that that. That, that bifurcated many communities, destroyed mm -hmm. some communities, mostly underserved and low income and, and minority communities in, in the US. And so that's a legacy that we, we are still living with and trying to work our way out from. Um, in terms of what's happening today, a couple of things to watch in, in the legislation that, that is uh, at, at this recording still being discussed. Uh, one of them is is the electrifying of the transit system in the U.S. There there will be massive deployments to put electric transit uh, buses in place across the country, which will make electric transportation accessible to a very wide swath of people in this country. And then um, the uh, the electric vehicle itself. It's interesting. We've had a tax credit for electric vehicles, seventy five hundred dollar tax credit. Um, and, and the, uh, credit is capped at 200,000 vehicles per manufacturer. So once a, once a manufacturer exceeds that number of vehicles, sold, the, 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 it, it doesn't apply anymore. And what this package is going to do 
it's going to expand that credit, but it's going to cap the income level of the purchaser. So, um, and it's also going to add a $2,500 um, uh, credit for someone who buys a used electric vehicle. So I, I do think Congress is trying to, to push more innovation into the lower economic strata um, as a way of, of trying to balance out the access. Now, when it comes to electric charging stations uh, and the deployment as a massive in investment in that, uh, they're gonna really have to work to make sure that those are, are placed in, in areas that, that have been historically underserved so that there is balance. But my point is um, whether it's electric vehicles, whether it's autonomous vehicles, uh, whether it's drones, even commercial space flight, um, there will need to continue to be a, a strong and robust effort in the U.S. to ensure that there is equitable distribution of these of these resources. And um, it's a it's a you know you're never done trying to make sure you're doing the right thing on that. Right, and that is, I mean, you know, when it comes to autonomous vehicles, we all focus on the cool tech and you know car driving itself and. And, you know, I think that's amazing stuff too, I, you know, I, but, but in a way what could be even harder about this is getting that role of government right, you know, understanding that if, if the kind of new autonomous system is nationwide in the United States, so, you know, 300, 400 million people, um, that could have a massive economic impact and spur all sorts of economic uh, opportunities across the broad for all sorts of individuals. Yeah. I mean, you've got a story about, I think I saw one video where you're saying, you know, at the time I had to tell my 12 year old daughter that my job was making sure that she probably never have to drive a car. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I mean, that, that's kind of like a funny, a funny way of putting it, but if government gets this right, it won't just be another one of those um, instances where, okay, we have this cool, great technology, but it hasn't really solved existing inequalities, it, it, it has the potential to open up new sectors of the economy, new opportunities, but it's been very slow and piecemeal. So do you kind of see transport as well as a litmus test for US policymakers and, 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 and governance officials working in tandem with the private sector? It is, it's very much a, a test of, of our ability to, to both collaborate, coordinate, and sometimes conflict um, between public and private sector where necessary. Um, and yeah, I, I think that, you know, when I was transportation secretary, for example, um, one, of the, one of the things that we were looking to do was to advance um, connected vehicles. Now, this is not a vehicle that drives itself based on software, but it is a vehicle that has a broadband connection to other vehicles on the road so that we can uh, do a better job of, of avoiding collisions, for example. And it's, it's totally consistent with, um, with an autonomous vehicle in the sense that having that additional capability through broadband could, could enhance even the safety of, of a vehicle that is, um, that is being controlled more by cameras um, than, than, than radar necessarily. So we were working to pass a rule, approve a rule that would allow those connected vehicles to come into to place. And it took a number of years, like probably more than, more than seven or eight years. It, the, the rule was in the works preceding me. And I think we got it done as I was walking out of the door. 
And my point is, is that if, if the technology is advancing at a rate every couple of years and the rulemaking regime is working on a seven or eight year time frame, yeah. you're going to be out of sync. And, and, and that's, that's the challenge the U.S. has is, is there, there almost needs to be a, uh, uh, what we used to call in, in, in law practice, a rocket docket. There almost needs to be a, um, uh, a fast break uh, lane that you can put certain rulemakings in because you want to stay consistent with like what's happening out in the world of, of, of technology without compromising the number one thing that the U.S. government would be concerned about, which is safety. So uh, it's hard to manage. You know, sometimes we don't know the parameters of what we should be looking for when it comes to things like safety, you know. And when you talk about equity, for example, um, one of the areas that I think is tremendously unexplored globally is the extent to which algorithmic bias starts to creep into some of these technologies. So, you know, imagine a, a 100% um, autonomous autonomous fleet in any country or in a, in a, in a city like Dubai. Um, and, you know, if the, if the algorithm is plugged in such that it goes to where most of the trips are, then it might push all of the vehicles or most of the vehicles into areas that are, you know, highly concentrated, high income, uh, et cetera. And the areas that aren't as densely populated or not as wealthy uh, may be underserved as a result. There may be more demand there, but less, less wealth. So we have to, we have to also begin to think about the implications of all of this connected technology, there's cybersecurity, there are all kinds of issues that we're gonna need to continue to confront. And I think we can only really do that working with industry, not, not necessarily working in isolation from industry. Yeah, I mean, there's so many kind of themes that you're picking up on that are just so relevant to this podcast, private public sector partnership. Also this idea of kind of regulatory delay you know so um there's a good case study in the fin in the fintech industry out here and you know i think the the two times where law lawmakers possibly get really worried is where people are either going to die or lose loads of money possibly the second one is sometimes <laughs> you know um and i think in fintech you know for banking and, and those kind of systems that goes to really the heart of the state and uh, there's a there's a government um initiative up in Abu Dhabi called ADGM or Abu Dhabi Global Market that sort of created a, a regulatory sandbox for fintech um, private sector companies to experiment with algorithms, with new models, and they can upload, you know, their, their code and some of what they're working on into this kind of online sandbox professionals from uh, UAE and across the world can look at it, audit it, and then they can very quickly see what the compliance issues are and what other issues are and kind of test it in a safe environment. And then after a period of testing, try and put some kind of, you know, minimum um, regulatory laws down so entrepreneurs can go out and test some of these models. And, you know, I think it's a new structure, but it's received a lot of very, very strong feedback from across the world in that space. Um, and of course, you know, the, the roads are slightly different and you do have that physicality to it, but it is interesting to see how kind of cities and, and different jurisdictions are trying to get over that time, like that you mentioned. And, um, 
Yeah, I mean, another thing that, I, that I've heard referenced by you that I found really fascinating was this idea that, you know, in rural areas where access is also a big problem, because, you know, we always think about cities. Cities are cool. But, but there's also this idea of indi individuals left behind in countries all over the world, from, you know, India to, to Asia to even parts of the United States, where rural communities haven't really accessed the digital economy to the same extent as individuals living in the city. Sometimes even basic necessities are hard. So I heard you talk about drones and even autonomous vehicles delivering pharmacy supplies or, or even access to education in circumstances where that would ordinarily be kind of difficult. And, and that sounds like a really big deal too. It absolutely is. Um, you know, this pandemic has really yeah. shined a light on uh, or shown a light on the, the, the problems of, of the poor and, and folks who live in, in rural parts of the world, uh, not only because of lack of access to medicine and some of the basic necessities, but, but, all, but also the, the lack of connectedness, you know, the, 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 you know, when, when the schools converted to digital learning during the pandemic, it was a easy flip of the switch for someone like me who lives in, you know, um, North Carolina in a fairly, uh, you know, fairly well populated area. But if you live in a rural area with no decent broadband, um, you 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 have a tough time making that adjustment. And uh, yeah, so we have you know, across the world we have a lot to to do to to try to figure it out. Now, from a transportation standpoint, um, what I've what I've long advocated is, and this probably is a solution that that uh, that could work on a more global basis. But oftentimes, rural communities, even if they're you know very remote, have some regional economic connection. You know, it could be agriculture, uh, could be um, any number of things. But the, the idea that I had around transportation was, let's figure out where these communities of interest are. You know, so a rural part of, um, of Arkansas might be connected to um, you know, urban centers as far away as uh, as Texas, but they they their economies behave in a very um, symbiotic fashion. And let's start planning transportation around those communities of interest. Let's start um, putting facilities in place that connect those communities. And it doesn't always have to be a highway. It could be, um, you know, it could be rail connections. It could be um, any sort of thing. And, and, and as we as we build and in, invest in our systems, a lot of times, again, in the U.S., a lot of times you have um, projects that you need to get done that cross state lines and disagreements across state borders about the necessity of one project or another. Um, you know, if I'm the governor of Arkansas and I see my workers uh, or, or my supplies going into Texas, uh, I might say to myself, well, it's more important to Texas than it is to me. So why should I, why should I invest in this, in this um, connection uh, for, for, to ease that type of, uh, that type of economy? So I, I think we have a, a challenge of sort of seeing how our economy behaves and planning around that rather than uh, accepting the fact that, you know, some people live in remote areas and, you know, so be it. I, I think that's not a, that the latter is not a good strategy. I think we have to 
figure out how these communities are connected because they are. Um, and then we have to start planning around uh, those communities of interest. And that picks up the rural areas, it picks up the suburbs, it picks up the urban areas, um, but it is, not, it is not confined always to geographic political lines, which is where so much uh, political transportation decision-making is, is done. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. The idea of kind of economic nodes that you might not ordinarily spot being identified yeah. by some of these new systems. Um, on that note, and, and kind of going back to the city, um, you have spoken about how mobility will actually reshape elements of the future city. And there's this idea I know that's being discussed here in the United States of, and in, in, in jurisdictions like Saudi Arabia of the 15 minute city. Why is that so attractive? Why, why is this idea of the 15 minute city something that is um, interesting to policymakers? And how do you think that will emerge in the future? I think it's interesting for several reasons. One is just the sheer demographic shifts that are underway across the world. Um, I live in a, I think you and I are probably in the sandwich generation here, um, which are the Gen Xers, but the, the generation behind us and the generation ahead of us, the boomers, they're the biggest populations in, in the world. And, and so both of those populations for different reasons want to live in a world where things are more conveniently located for them, where they can walk instead of getting in a car, where um, they they have the conveniences near where, where they are. And, and that's, a, that's a generational uh, yeah. change that I think will, uh, because of the, the bookends of those generations, uh, will, will last us for a long time. So urban planners are smart to try to figure out how can you place housing in areas that have like a wide array of neighborhood services? How can you incent those neighborhood services into, um, into areas that are already highly densely populated? How can you put um, transportation facilities in place that give people a variety of choices? You know, um, there's some parts of the US where, you know, literally, you, you have a house that's on a cul-de-sac in a gated community that feeds out onto a large arterial road. And, you know, when you have a hundred developments that are feeding into that arterial road, you're going to get traffic, you're going to get congestion, you're going to get frustration, you're just going to get the kind of misery that comes with, uh, with, with rapid growth. But, you know, there's a different way to plan. There's uh, northwest, uh, north, south, east, west street grids. There's, um, there's transit, there are bike paths and walking trails. Um, there, are, uh, there, there are lots of things that cities and urban areas can do to give people a choice. And you know, my view is like, as a, as a pedestrian, as a, as a transportation user, I want you know, four or five different modalities available to me to make any one trip, because if the road's congested, maybe I walk. If, you know, so I, I want to have those choices, and I think that's part of, of good urban planning in the 21st century. That's kind of, yeah, I mean, it's crazy, isn't it, in, in this idea that, you know, this, we're almost going back to this idea that walking around a city can be really nice, yes. and um, it, it, it's ironic, but I increasingly think, you know, if you can walk to work, that's a sign of wealth. <laughs> You know, you're lucky, yeah. you know, yeah, um, and, and, it's, and it's, one of the, it's one of the strange things about kind of European cities. I, I increasingly when I go mm -hmm. to them, I kind of like it because 
and walking around and it's a bit relaxing it's yeah. almost like a it's almost like a treat but it's not something that you think of and certainly you know my parents generational parents generation before them it was always about you know getting in your car and the independence and the, you know the whole the whole dream of owning your own ride so it's definitely shifting a bit um but there are there are also new incentives coming in so you know one of the ideas with autonomous vehicles is that your car can park itself for you and hopefully avoid congestion a little <laughs> bit easier that yeah. i mean that sounds like a small thing but you know parking in dubai mall autonomously that would be uh, you know amazing are these i mean are these solutions that that planners are looking at as well it's that i mean that's a pretty easy sell you know your car will park itself oh yeah i mean look i i think the great the great thing about places like um uh you know take european cities they never went so car crazy that they just tore down all of their historical um uh facilities to make room and and that's why those places continue to be walkable uh i do think the the future of the city is very bright because of the revolution you're talking about. Um, the idea that, you know, whether it's a, you know, pool of autonomous vehicles that, that you and I don't own, but we utilize regularly to get from one place to another, or whether it's a, you know, individually owned autonomous vehicle, the idea is we're going to need less parking. So, you know, you go to many us cities and there are parking decks, um, there are blacktop parking lots all over the place. And I think a lot of that property is going to get reclaimed and reinvented. So we're going to see more open space. We're going to see uh, more places where those lots are converted to housing. I think, I think there are going to be a lot of changes that open up the urban environment um, to make them more livable and more walkable. And uh, I think it's going to be fantastic once we get there. Yeah, I mean, that is really interesting. I know there's an architectural debate in the UK. Um, I don't know about the US, but, but and I'm not an architect, but there is a debate comparing some of our very old cities where there was a much um, more reluctant shift towards roads and, and cars mm -hmm. to some of the cities where they have. And actually some of the cities that, you know, have this old car-focused infrastructure become incredibly difficult to actually get around because of traffic. And, and not to mention a little bit unsightly, whereas we have some cities, very old cities in the UK, Oxford, Cambridge, a couple of others, that never really adapted to the car that well. And it was probably, you know, a little bit awkward for a while. But those cities have retained their character and, 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 and remain really nice places to live, whereas, strangely enough, more modern cities are having lots of trouble. I don't know if that a similar trend is in the States or not. Very much, very much so. It's uh, And we have fewer of the of what you would describe as the old cities. Our old cities aren't as old as the ones over in the UK, but but um, uh, we we do have, you know, Washington DC, for example. Mm. Um, first of all, the roads are terrible uh, and, and they're terrible in terms of their pavement condition, but they're also terrible in terms of, the city was never made for the kind of congestion that exists in the city. So the roads are narrower than they would, build them today perhaps um and uh it makes it difficult to get around a, a city like dc um which is why it's important to have the transit system in place and why um you know walkability of the city is so is so critical look i i i think we're going to we're going to see a dramatic move away from 
of vehicle ownership in the next 30 years. Um, those who can afford it probably will still have them, but many people who've had to invest, you know, a high percentage of their annual income to own a car and keep the car up and insure the car. Um, I think there are going to be services available to those folks that are going to allow them not to have to own the car, but to, but to buy the trips. And, and, and that's going to give them uh, a, a much more, uh, a lot more financial freedom than they've had before. And it's also going to relieve a lot of the uh, utilization of, 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 of vehicles in, in cities. Today in the U.S., I think the average vehicle is idle 90, 96% of the time. Uh, and so we're getting 4% utilization out of those vehicles. If you can get that up to 20, 30, 40, 50% per vehicle, now all of a sudden you need a whole lot fewer vehicles to move people around. So I, I think there's an opportunity to see this transportation revolution also reduce congestion and again, clean up our air and, and make, make, make life more livable. Yeah, it's definitely a more kind of nuanced, holistic debate. Than I previously thought. I, I previously thought it was very tech focused, but there's a lot there. Um, yeah. So we're coming to the end of our time today, but I've got three quick final questions, just okay. kind of honing in on some of these themes. And you know, I know supply chain management is is a big issue um, in developed economies, U.S. and U.K., many other economies right now. Particularly in my country, we've had COVID nineteen, but we've also had Brexit. And there've been massive problems with getting food into stores and all sorts of other strange items. Um, do you think, as we go beyond autonomous cars to even autonomous global shipping, supply routes, um, other forms of transport, that supply chain logistics will become a kind of key area of focus for the private sector in particular? It certainly will be a, a, an area of focus. If it, if it wasn't before the pandemic, it certainly is going to yeah. be after the pandemic. Um, there's also going to continue to be pressure on, um, on most industrialized company con countries to, uh, to, to, um, to do more of their own, um, supply chain, uh, development and, and, and growth. Um, I think that that's also something that's, that's probably going to come out of this, this pandemic is, is, is a sense that, you know, while there are advantages to, global trade, maybe having some of these products made closer to home will, will prevent us from finding our way into one of these supply chain problems down the road. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so Anthony, two final questions. And the first is, you know, everyone's seen the whole kind of minority report um, sci-fi argument. I think <laughs> Wired did a big article on it as well of, of kind of, you know, hacked cars and, you know, the 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 journalist with a story that's uh, just a little bit too edgy, suddenly his car goes off the road. So this idea of, of hacking um, some of these vehicles, but, but probably also, I mean, that, that's an interesting topic for techies, but also this idea of data, because there's a big debate over data, yeah. who owns the data, what's the economic value of that data. And of course, the data from some of these autonomous systems is... Um, remarkably useful, particularly to, to private sector companies and to governments. And if we're having this discussion on, on uh, you know, equity and, and, and the ethics of this and, and not exploiting, um, the, you know, populations, particularly vulnerable populations, how do you think that's going to play out going forward? Because it's not right now center stage in the debate, but it is something that seems to be coming. 
It's coming for sure. And it's already complicated. You know, this is one of the massive gray areas that exists in, in the world today. Insurance companies have far more access to data from individual car owners' cars than, than I think the car owners actually realize today. Um, that's just one example. I think the end state uh, is going to be one where you and I own our data and we we decide where where it goes. Um, I think there's almost no other end state that makes sense to me. Um, and that, but that you know, is that ten years from now? Is it forty years from now? Yeah. I don't know. But I I think that's where things are ultimately headed. Yeah, I mean, you could almost have a system where you know, if you're if you're using a private sector service, you own your data, whereas government is subsidized, but government has some access to some of that data for logistics purposes. It is really interesting. So just to end our discussion today, Anthony, thanks so much for your time. I noticed that when you're talking about this sector of the economy, you're talking about mobility, you kept mentioning that two things. One, there's a transformation taking place between machines and humans in mobility. And secondly, to understand it and to plan for it, we need to be intentional about it. So what do you mean by this transformation and, and you know, planning it and being intentional about it? What do you mean when you talk about that? I think we're going to find ourselves being able to move faster, cleaner, smarter than human beings ever have. And I think that transportation is going to take us places and you know Mars is one of those places but I think we're gonna we're gonna find that transportation is able to do more than we ever thought it could you know there's hyperloop you, you talked about hyperloop before um, which will just dramatically cut the travel time between city pairs uh, in ways that we never thought was possible um, on the ground at least and I think I think it's pretty exciting at the same time, um, I think the, the, the transformations that, that we are undergoing have to be done in partnership with government um, because they're too expensive for the private sector to do purely on their own. Um, and I think they also have to be done with, a, with acute attention to safety. And um, that's where I think the partnership between government and the private sector are really critical because historically inventors have made up stuff and then the government has figured out how to regulate it. We kind of, because of the rate of change we're discussing, we need to be working in real time with each other. Um, and so there needs to be uh, a way for government and industry to work together as technology is being developed if the expectation is it wants to scale. So, uh, you know, that's what, I, that's what I see going forward. And I think that touches on cybersecurity. I think it touches on... Um, autonomous vehicles. I think it touches on uh, just about everything we've talked about today. Anthony Fox on the UAE Tech Podcast. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, John. It's great to be with you. Sponsor information. The UAE Tech Podcast is distributed by Alboaba Business free of charge. To sponsor a single episode or a series of themed episodes, please contact our editorial team or download a sponsorship press pack. Sponsors receive an article on Alba Weber Business, syndication distribution on Alba Weber Syndicate, 
email direct marketing across the region, and brand inclusion across all podcast marketing design, audio, and video formats. Alpawaba is not a PR company, and we do retain editorial discretion and quality control as an independent publisher. Companies looking to support a dialogue on technological transformation in the UAE are encouraged to contact our team.